Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Sunday, December 3rd, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 12. Those of you that know me know that one of my favorite artistic concepts to work with is the idea of public space and how people move through public space, who can be in public space, when, what the restrictions and legalities on public space are, you know, what is truly public. And when I was 19, I got involved with Occupy Wall Street, and that really sparked my interest in public space uh, because it was started in the Bowling Green, actually. It wasn't started in Zuccotti Park. We actually moved there as a strategic decision, but the Bowling Green is the oldest park in New York City, so I think it's fitting that that's where the gathering point was, and I only learned that later on. So for all of these reasons, I got interested in parks. I was getting into community gardening, and public space was an issue that I was working with in my art. I did my thesis on street harassment, women moving through public space, what that's like as an experience, queer people moving through public space. So all of this sort of sparked my interest in the subject. Then a few years later, I was commissioned to do a photography project on New York City parks, and it included visual historic timelines. So I was responsible for writing the copy as well as gathering historic photographs and maps. And so I did heavy research on a lot of Manhattan parks through that project, and it allowed me to really trace history back in. So I really want to just tell some stories that I learned through those experiences and becoming interested in the idea of public space. And my research has permanently altered the way that I think about those parks. I have so many more connections when I go into those parks now. And what you'll find is that these parks are sites of great violence. And that's something that is largely ignored or revised in the history as far as the way that it's told for the mainstream audience. So I really want to get into some alternative history right now and just talk about some stories that you might not have heard before. The Bowling Green is the first park in New York City. It's what it's heralded as, so it's the one that I want to talk about first. And many existing New York City transit routes, if you go back and look into the history, they were originally Lenape routes, which means that they weren't carved out. They already existed, and the settlers that were there just, you know, usurped them. And so people still travel on Lenape routes every single day. And the most famous of these is Broadway in Manhattan. And so Broadway followed the high ridge of the island, so it was, you know, following the ecology. And it was the end of one of the longest trails going northwards, which was, you know, an Algonquin trade route going all the way upstate. So it followed right along the Hudson River. And so this held a lot of importance as a route because of how geographically powerful the Hudson is, how long of a distance you could travel on it, and the communication, right? The end of this trail was at the southern tip of Manhattan, the end of Broadway. And that's now Bowling Green Park. And this was the original site of a sacred elm tree and council fire for the Capsi people, a group of Canarsie Lenape people. And the Bowling Green was the site of one of the Capsi chief's houses in accordance with local customs. So in 1643, in what is now called the Pavonia Massacre, 120 indigenous peoples were murdered in the Bowling Green 
by 129 Dutch soldiers. And this was during what is now referred to as the Kieft's War, where the Netherlands Director General Willem Kieft unilaterally ordered attacks on Lenape villages. And what this ended up doing was uniting several Algonquin peoples in the violent struggle for the Lenape to keep their homelands, and that continued on for two years. Over 1,600 Lenape were killed, and for some perspective, only 250 to 400 Europeans were at this point inhabiting Manhattan Island. However, it did cause many Dutch people to return to Europe, and Willem Kieft died in a shipwreck returning back to Europe himself. Another fact about the Bowling Green is that George Washington had planned to build his White House on it, and currently the National Museum of the American Indian is on this land. The first presidential White House was actually in Manhattan on Cherry Street, another street named after the Lenape because they had a cherry orchard located there. So when we refer to the Bowling Green Park as the oldest park in New York City, it's also a colonialist erasure because it is stolen sacred Lenape land and the site of a massacre in which infants and women were slaughtered in horrific ways. So this is a pretty disturbing and sobering thought, but I think it's necessary that we understand and introduce discussions about public space as the sites of, of great violence, and that's something that is a commonality in all of the parks that I researched. And that's really what brought me to wanting to make a podcast about it, because uh, I remember researching all of it and not knowing how to organize all the information because I was really taken aback by all of the separate parks and how there's common threads between all of them. So obviously learning those stories changed my relationship with the land and it provides a real context for New York, I think. And you know, like where we address reparations and how we could address them in the form of land and ac access to this land again. Genocide was enacted on these people and then they were erased out of the history of the city. So, you know, like I searched around, of course, to find this information, but a lot of it you won't find on Wikipedia even if you search. Like most things will really just start with the colonial era and say nothing of the Lenape people and their existing civilization on that land. So I wanted everyone to really understand the Bowling Green and what it means. Um, as the Lenape were the original inhabitants and caretakers of Manhattan Island. The second park I'm going to talk about is Union Square. Another revision I've noticed through the research is in the name of Union Square, which is often warmly heralded as the heart of protest. The reasoning behind Union Square, becoming a public site at least, is credited to John Randall, who was surveying the island for the Commissioner's Plan of 1811. And as you know, Broadway already existed, and the route was on an angle. So it would have been awkward for them to build a building on this space, um, so they broke it from the grid pattern that they were laying out, and they cut it on the western side to create the park. The first massive public demonstration in Union Square occurred during the Civil War, April 20th, 1861, just days after the capture of Fort Sumter by Confederate troops. This brought an enormous rally 
mostly Irish, Germans, Eastern European men. Black people were not able to attend. They were barred with threat of violence from attending. And white women and children were relegated to private spaces such as balconies and windows inside to observe the rally. The rally is normatively considered in support of the Union, but rather split in ideology, of course. Many believe that the seceded states needed to be brought back into the Union, but the city's businessmen advocated for the continuation of slavery. Obviously, they did this in the interests of their own profits. They feared the collapse of the northern economy if the South was able to independently sell their cotton to Europe, and the North's textile industry heavily relied on the South's ability to collect and distribute cotton to them. This is one of the ways where the North benefited from slavery, and there were a lot of outspoken advocates, especially people of high class and business class, that wanted the continuation of slavery. So, Again, there's this revisionist vibe with Union Square where it's considered to be a really radical space. And it was at other points in history, but in the very first instance, it was not. In the days following, volunteer regiments formed around ethnicity, and once again, black people were barred from forming their own regiments. So this was just one of many examples where racialized control and terror was conveniently not mentioned in the normative narrative around the Civil War. Newspapers claim that this was the greatest popular demonstration ever known, and years after that, the first Labor Day celebration happened there on September 5th, 1882, and this was when 10,000 workers marched up Broadway and filed past the reviewing stand at Union Square. Now, Union Square does have some radical history, so I'm going to talk about that for a second. 3,000 people in the summer of 1893 came to Union Square, but for a different purpose, and they carried red flags, which were a symbol of socialists, nihilists, anarchists, and laborites around the world. So they also, many of them did not speak English. They spoke their immigrant languages and were proud of it. So Germans, Russians, Yiddish people, Polish people, Italians. And the reason why they came to Union Square is because three months earlier, the Wall Street Panic of 1893 happened, and that sent the U.S. economy crashing into a depression, which threw thousands of men out of work. So in 1893, long before the government safety net programs, this meant dire conditions for people. People were starving, and there was disease, and People were really angry to the point of rioting. So just 24 years old at the time, Emma Goldman spoke to the crowd. And she could speak in Russian or Yiddish or German. And so she used to confuse the police because she would switch languages mid-speech, which is just brilliant, right? Emma Goldman got up to address the 3,000 crowd of men, uh, no less, in Union Square, and, and so a few days later she was arrested. Um, by this time she had traveled to Philadelphia to speak there, and she was arrested and taken back to New York City, uh, accused of rioting, or I'm sorry, inciting riot. 
And the detective that was bringing her back asked her to inform on the other anarchists, and her response was to throw water in their face. So the jury sided with the state, and the judge called her a dangerous woman, and she was sentenced to a year in prison, and she did 10 months was released, and she continued going back to Union Square, and there's a whole longer history of Emma Goldman. You definitely have to read the biography of Emma Goldman. She's such an interesting person. I read a book about her life um, from childhood to the day she died, and it was really interesting stuff. Um, But she continued to make speeches in Union Square for, for years to come. Washington Square Park is the next park I'm going to talk about, and it was once a marsh that fed the Mineta Brook, and it was a village called Sapiokanikan, or Tobacco Field, and the Lenape called this place home. By the mid-1600s, the land on either side of the Mineta Brook was Dutch-controlled farmland, and as you know from the Bowling Green, the Kiev's War was currently destroying that homeland. So right in the middle of this assault on Lenape peoples and villages was the introduction of slavery to New York City. And this was orchestrated by the Dutch West India Company in 1626. Eleven men were stolen from their homes and brought to Manhattan Island. The institution of slavery would continue for 200 years in New York City. The first slave auction was held at the corner of Pearl and Wall Street on the East River in 1655. In 1643, which was the same year as the Bowling Green Massacre, Paul D'Angola, as he is historically known, but we might never know his born name, petitioned the Dutch West Indian Company for his freedom, and his petition was actually granted. But of course, it was a conditional freedom. They gave Paul D'Angola the area that is now Washington Square Park, but they did so strategically, and this was so that they could create a buffer zone to keep out the Lenape south of their settlement. So from the very beginning of New York City, you can see that white people orchestrated the antagonisms between African people and indigenous peoples, like they literally organized that. The freedmen's conditions included paying profits of the land that they farmed to the Dutch West Indian Company, and any of their children would be taken from them and enslaved. So Washington Square Park was controlled by African people for roughly 20 years, and was referred to by the Dutch as, quote, the land of the blacks. It remained a farm until 1797, when the Common Council of New York purchased the fields. And that's when it became used as a potter's field or a common burial ground, known for burying unknown or indigent peoples and also diseased peoples. During the yellow fever epidemics of the early 1820s, Washington Square Park was used to bury those that had died. So the remains of over 20,000 people lie underneath the park today. Now another aspect of Washington Square Park that I want to talk about is that it holds the oldest tree in Manhattan. That tree is a 330-year-old elm tree 
that exists on the northwest corner of Washington Square Park and it is known as Hangman's Elm. The only lynching on record is the public hanging of 19-year-old Rose Butler, an enslaved black woman. She had locked her slave masters, the Morris family, in their home and set it on fire. No one was injured, and only a few kitchen stairs were burned, but she was sentenced to hang by jury. She at first denied setting the fire, citing two accomplices, but later rescinded and confessed. It was unusual for women to receive the death penalty, and her case went all the way to the Supreme Court. They argued whether arson was a capital offense or a common law offense, which would have saved her life, but Butler was sentenced to hang. She was executed on July 9, 1820, from the elm tree in Washington Square Park. The lynching drew huge crowds, including a minister, who claimed that black people have rights but also the obligation to live within the law, which to me sounded very, very familiar to the way that black people are often blamed for their own murders. But emancipation was not a measured progression or even an event in New York City history. For roughly 50 years before Rose was murdered, black people had been buying their freedom or moving people along the Underground Railroad or migrating to even safer places. The Dutch may have called it the land of the blacks, but it was also referred to as Little Africa because it was a burgeoning village by this time, and black people had organized their own churches, newspapers, and organizations in the area. Rose died just seven years before legal emancipation in 1827. To me, it's certain that white anxieties about black cultural and political freedom in this very area contributed to her unusual and harsh sentencing that mandated her legal lynching. And her story is today largely ignored by the mainstream narratives about the history of the park. So I just find that really interesting that her story is so completely erased. And I tried to sort of tell this story about the history of Washington Square Park during the Million March NYC, which was planned in December 2014 to protest anti-black violence, police terror, and to uplift the dead, including Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, and Eric Garner, among so many others. And that march began in Washington Square Park. So it was really fitting, I think. And, uh, I'm not sure if the organizers knew that, but I, I just, for myself, when I was there marching, I was thinking about that as we were gathering. Just two years after Rose's murder, the yellow fever scare happened in New York, and that caused wealthy residents of Lower Manhattan to leave the area and relocate northwards towards Greenwich Village, and that surrounded the park, so... They did not like the idea of the potter's field and gallows outside of their neighborhood, and of course, this is where things always change. So in 1825, all of the bodies that were buried there were covered over, and the land was declared a military parade ground. Now, Bryant Park has a similar thread of racial terror in its history. It shares the commonality with Washington Square Park that it was at one time a wild place, and then a potter's field for about 20 years until it became the site of the first New York City reservoir. It was the first site of fresh water being
being ushered in from upstate through an aqueduct system. This was completed in 1842 and cost over 11 million. Again, similar to Washington Square Park, the New York City Common Council decided the park was to be constructed on the land next to the reservoir. And thus Bryant Park was originally referred to as Reservoir Park, and it opened in 1847. Like many parks of the day, it became a military parade ground during the Civil War, and this is really the part of the history that I want to focus on. Bryant Park is known as one of the major points of the New York City 1863 draft riots, which took place on July 13th through 17th. These were white working-class men who were irate at the drafts mandating their involvement fighting the ongoing American Civil War. These riots remain the largest civil and racial insurrection in American history besides the Civil War itself. The riot was comprised of mostly Irish and Italian men who had many facets to their anti-black sentiments. Some were pro-slavery and were furious that black people were not eligible for the draft because they were not considered citizens. Others were newly racialized as white and were just exercising their racial power. Other poor members feared that black people would compete with them for jobs if freed, and there was, of course, the resentment for wealthier whites who could afford to pay out of the draft. So all of these antagonisms contributed to their motivation to enact racial violence, and many of them got drunk before they did it. Though the mainstream narrative claims that the riot was in opposition to the draft itself, it was definitely a race riot and it was primarily Irish and Italian immigrants who violently attacked black people in the city. Over 120 people were killed. The rioters destroyed public buildings, Protestant churches, the homes of abolitionists, sympathizers, black homes, and the most heinous collective act occurred on 5th Avenue between 42nd and 43rd, which would be right next to the existing Bryant Park where the Colored Orphan Asylum was burned to the ground. The Colored Orphan Asylum was run by three Quaker women who took in black children whose parents had died or could not afford to take care of them. This was the first center for this in the country. The country's first licensed black medical doctor became the orphanage's medical director. So it was quite a progressive uh, institution for its time. During the draft riots, the furious white mobs targeted the building, and the superintendent and head matron had to lead 233 black children out the back door to escape. This race riot is attributed to being one of the causes of black migration to Brooklyn out of Manhattan afterwards. And the last park I'm going to discuss is Central Park. The untouched land was rocky and swampy, and it was relatively uninhabited until European settlement. Between 1821 and 1855, the immigrant population in New York City quadrupled, and this caused people to move northwards, which you've noticed in all of the other threads. That's another, uh, the general population moving northwards had a lot to do with the development of each park in, in one way or another. And the city's wealthy were trying to technologically and ideologically rival England at this time. There's always this power play that's going on in geopolitics, and that was really just getting started at that time. So they were calling for a park that could rival Hyde Park in London, 
That was the whole point in building Central Park. So to accomplish this, the New York State Legislature enacted a law that set aside 750 acres of Manhattan Island in 1853. But for over 50 years, a community of people had already settled in this previously undesirable land. Over 1,600 free black people and Irish immigrants had legally purchased plots of land in Central Park. Whites would regularly refuse to sell the land to black people, but this area was one exception where you could gain ownership, and many did. And the area was so developed that it actually had separate villages, such as Harsonville, Seneca Village, and the Piggery District. Half of the black people that were living in Seneca Village owned their homes, which was five times the city average. So you could see why this was so important of a space, a cultural space, in terms of preservation, in terms of cultural space, in terms of private space, in terms of safe space. They raised livestock like pigs and goats. They had their own churches and schools and even midwifery services. But as more wealthy people bought up property on either side of the park, which is now known as the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side, they used illegal means to evict the current residents. So the first use of eminent domain in New York City happened in Central Park, and those laws were the justification for destroying these communities. So in 1857, the communities were raised to begin construction of the park. And when the park was completed in 1873, the residents and the villages that they built were largely forgotten. And today, there's only one small commemorative plaque that mentions these villages. So you can see that, again, the city of New York is not interested in telling these stories. They really aim for a much more revisionist version of these events. One thing I would really recommend is to research the local parks in your area. There is a lot of interesting history about public events and people fighting for public space or even, you know, space, private space being taken from people to be used publicly, such as the story of Central Park. So I found all of these things through my research. I thought the parks are a real site of violence. They're a real site of racialized and gendered violence, especially. So I just really wanted to go through that history and share it. But all of these things really deserve further research and further expansion. So Definitely get into that on your own time as well. Um, if there's anything that you learn, please feel free to let me know. If I missed anything, I would love to find a deeper meaning for the parks in New York. I've spent a lot of time in all of those parks, so being able to go through that really makes you reverent of the space that you're in because there's such a long history. And so often I feel like New York's history is just... It's so layered. It's like layers of paint. So when you chip it off, like there's several that are there occurring on the same plane. And you really got to dig for each of them to because each unique layer has a different meaning. And that's really what I found. There are commonalities between all of these parks and their history. And then there are things that are divergent and special events that happened and people that were there. So I tried to really center that as I was going through it, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, share it with someone you love. This concludes episode 12 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Until next time, good night.